Engaging conversation on the most urgent problem of our day and what you can do about it. Now, the End Abortion Podcast by Priests for Life. Hello and welcome to Pro-Life Primetime News. Today is Friday, September 16th. I'm Leslie Palma. In for Teresa Watson, I'm Anthony Bassone. Tonight we'll report on a 15-week abortion bill introduced in the U.S. House and Senate and why we at Priests for Life support it. I'll dig down into Planned Parenthood's most recent annual report. You'll have an opportunity to meet Dr. Teresa Burke, founder of Rachel's Vineyard, a ministry of healing after abortion. I'll have the results of primaries in three states and other political news in a nutshell. And I'll report on the latest abortion news from around the country. Stay tuned until the end when we will reveal how our movie recommendation did at the box office. On Tuesday, South Carolina Republican Senator Lindsey Graham and 80 House Republicans introduced legislation to protect babies at 15 weeks and beyond from abortion. The Protecting Pain-Capable Unborn Children from Late-Term Abortions Act includes exceptions for pregnancies conceived in rape and incest and to save the life of the mother. According to the Charlotte Lozier Institute, more than 55,000 babies are killed annually at 15 weeks or later. The most common method used in the second trimester is called D&E, for dilation and evacuation, in which forceps are used to pull babies literally, limb from limb, out of their mother's wombs. New Jersey Representative Chris Smith, a pro-life warrior in the House and co-chair of the Pro-Life Caucus, said the legislation responds to the scientific advances already recognized in fetal medicine by increasing human rights protections for these children. The bill is likely to renew debate on how early in pregnancy children in the womb can feel pain. While abortion advocates and their media allies insist 24 weeks is the earliest point, a paper written by two fetal pain experts, one pro-life and one pro-choice, and published in the Journal of Medical Ethics in 2020, concluded that fetal pain was possible as early as 12 weeks. In announcing the bill, Congressman Smith said, quote, we all dread pain, avoid it, and even fear it, and we all go to extraordinary lengths to mitigate its severity and its duration for ourselves. Yet every day, a whole segment of human beings is being subjected to painful and deadly procedures. This unconscionable human rights abuse must stop. Senator Graham noted that a ban at 15 weeks would bring the United States in line with much of the world. Currently, We are one of just seven nations that allow abortion through all nine months of pregnancy. And Democrats in the House and Senate have twice voted on a bill that would make such unlimited access to abortion a federal law. The Democrat majority House passed the bill twice, but it failed to make progress in the evenly divided Senate. Many pro-lifers have been hoping for a nationwide ban on all abortion, so there has been some pushback against this bill, including from some Republicans in Congress. We asked Father Frank Pavone, National Director of Priests for Life, to explain why he supports the pain-capable bill. Director of Priests for Life, and as you can see, I am standing here uh, today, the um, uh, Tuesday the 13th of September, in front of the United States uh, Capitol Building in Washington, D.C., where just a little while ago, our friend Senator Lindsey Graham, uh, pro-life Republican senator from uh, South Carolina, introduced a new bill to protect babies nationwide starting from 15 weeks into pregnancy. Now, this is a big step forward. Obviously, our ultimate goal is the protection of all the children, but the 
but the men and women in this building representing the people of America have to make their decisions based on uh, what they are able to accomplish, the consensus they are able to build at the moment among their fellow legislators. And the fact that this bill is introduced, which we at Priests for Life uh, strongly support, is a clear distinguishing mark between the Republicans and the Democrats. And this is important for all of us to emphasize in this election season, that the Republicans are willing to protect these babies. Now, we've always had uh, various uh, positions and opinions within the pro-life uh, community about how far we can go, how fast, and you can go farther in some parts of the country than you can in others. But remember, this is a bill nationwide. There is no federal legislation putting a gestational limit on uh, the uh, performance of abortion. This would be the first very significant uh, limit. We know that Biden will not sign it into law, but that's a different branch of government. This branch of government, given now uh, more of a green light from the Supreme Court to say, do the will of the people uh, is doing its job. And we know the American people do not want unrestricted abortion. And that's the point of comparison. The Republicans are willing to legislate to protect more babies in the womb. And in, do in so doing, of course, protecting their mothers and fathers and families. The Democrats, on the other hand, and we have to keep pointing this out, are for unrestricted abortion with no limits throughout pregnancy and they want to take away even the most reasonable regulations like parental involvement in the abortion of a minor so this is what's going on here in washington today we're very happy that senator graham has uh introduced this uh this legislation and we will be working with him and with the uh American people uh, through Priests for Life to get this uh, to a very, very strong uh, majority vote. And uh, uh, we, will, we will put the Democrats also on record uh, on uh, this matter because they do not want this. And we will eventually get it passed, and not with the Democrats in charge, but we will certainly uh, put, put them on record as far as uh, now that it's been introduced, where do you stand on protecting these babies and uh, or do you want uh, abortion throughout pregnancy? Ask them the question, challenge them, and let's continue moving forward in this uh, era after Roe v. Wade. God bless you. Father Frank Pavone here speaking to you from the United States Capitol. New Hampshire State Senate President Chuck Morse conceded the Republican Senate primary Wednesday morning to Don Bolduc, a retired Army Brigadier General who has embraced Trump's approach to politics in the race to take on incumbent Democratic Senator Maggie Hassan for the seat in New Hampshire's first congressional district. Caroline Levitt, a 25-year-old former Trump aide, defeated Matt Mowers, another former Trump administration official, but one who was more cautious on issues such as the 2020 election. If she wins in November, Levitt will be among the youngest people elected to Congress, where the minimum age is 25. She will face off against a two-term incumbent, Democrat Chris Pappas. Robert Burns, another Trump-aligned candidate, beat six other Republicans in the race for New Hampshire's 2nd Congressional District. Burns will run against incumbent Democrat Ann McLean Custer in November. The field is set for what's expected to be one of New England's most competitive congressional races this fall after Rhode Island State Treasurer Seth Magaziner won the 2nd Congressional District's Democratic primary. He will face Republican Alan Fung, the former mayor of Cranston, 
a candidate national Republicans believe will make that race competitive. Incumbent Democratic Rep Jim Langevin is retiring. President Biden flew to Delaware on Tuesday afternoon to vote, despite the state only having one contested race, state auditor. Lydia York defeated incumbent Kathleen McGinnis for the Democratic nomination. McGinnis in July was convicted on three misdemeanor counts of public corruption related to the hiring of her daughter, though a judge later tossed one conviction. York faces Republican Janice Laura in November. If elected, York will be the first black woman to serve in the role. The primary season is now over, except for Louisiana. Its primary will be on November 8th, election date in the other 49 states, with the general election on December 10th. Early voting begins in October for the general election in some states. Check stateelectioncalendar.org to see if and when early voting happens in your state. Rachel's Vineyard is the largest ministry of healing after abortion in the world. Founded by Dr. Teresa Burke and Kevin Burke in 1995, it has grown from just a handful of weekend retreats to more than 1,000 a year throughout the United States and in more than 80 countries. Headquartered near Philadelphia, Rachel's Vineyard became a ministry of Priests for Life in 2003. A woman who attended a Rachel's Vineyard retreat in Minnesota wrote to say, I felt so much lighter, so much more peaceful, and so much more hopeful for the future. I made more progress in this one weekend than I have in multiple years of therapy. Another who attended a retreat in Texas said, this retreat was completely filled with God's love. It's a place where I was understood and there was no judgment. I've never felt so loved and accepted as I did on this retreat. It's a place where healing occurs, where God moves and freedom happens. We've invited Dr. Teresa Burke to join us this evening to talk about the ministry's founding and how the demise of Roe v. Wade has impacted its mission. Well, welcome, Teresa, to Pro-Life Primetime News. It's so nice to have you here. Hi, Leslie. Great to be with you today. <laughs> yeah. So I wanted, uh, this, this is the first time we were having Rachel's Vineyard on our show. I wanted you to tell us a little bit about the origin story, about the, group, the support group you were leading as a, a graduate student, I believe, and what started this whole journey for you. Yeah, that goes back a long ways, uh, probably 35 years ago. I mean, more than that, actually. But um, uh, the back back story is that I was involved in a rescue with one of my best friends. Um, her brother's now a bishop. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Joe Coffey. He's a supporter of priests. Oh, he is. Yes. But um, she encouraged me to come out and I had my son, Kevin, as a brand new baby. So I had already been in graduate school. I had already discovered there was a problem, but mm -hmm. I, I was still trying to do something pro-life and I didn't know quite what. Mm -hmm. So um, when I was taken in, they threatened to uh, separate me from my infant who was only, he was born in August. This was the end of the summer. So he would have been like two weeks old. Oh, wow. <laughs> and when I came home, Kevin was so upset that I would put myself and our baby at risk that he said, you have to find another way to express your pro-life beliefs. <laughs> <laughs> so after having um, done that eating disorder group where my supervisor said I had no business prying into people's abortion and abortion is a private personal thing. And my supervisor clamped down and said, no way, this is- well, well, But wait, tell us about that. How many people were in the group and how many identified abortion in their past? Well, all but two had had abortions and it was like a bomb going off in the group. One woman got angry and started defending abortion rights and cursing anybody that would make her feel guilty. Another girl left the room. Another girl um, changed the subject immediately. Another one was having active symptoms of trauma 
comments, she was the one who triggered the explosion because she was telling about how her husband would call and leave messages on her answering machine, calling her a murder, which resulted in her slitting her wrists and ending up in the psych ward. So because it was triggering the most painful emotional experience she'd ever gone through. And that's sort of what made me realize there's a problem here. And at the time I was finishing graduate school. that was my internship with eating disorders. And then I made a career change and decided (laughs) that I wanted to explore something that there was very little support and very little in the literature about. So um, I believe that I started one of the first therapeutic support groups. No idea what I was doing, but I saw very quickly that talking about it for many women made it worse. And years later, all the trauma therapists, I mean, recently years later, several decades later, they are, you know, teaching people that talk therapy for trauma can actually reinforce and make people more aroused, more panicky, more threat. And and we can see this, I think, today as abortion is kind of revisited with the overturning of Roe versus, Roe versus Wade, mm-hmm. that you see this... Um, what was sanctioned as good medicine, health care, you know, the fact that the courts are relooking, it's being returned to the states. Um, I think it is provoking a threat response, just like I saw in my eating disorder group, because people were going into fight or flight mode of trauma, survival, mm-hmm. and they were also shutting down and numbing out, you know, um, and, and that's what we that's what we see. These are the kind of calls we're getting on our hotline. Our retreats are packed right now. In fact, there's some sites doing one every month and planning to do one every month starting the new year, English and Spanish retreats, because the overload and the waiting lists are are really, really high. And we try to keep a confidential and kind of a very, um, like smaller groups. You know, to me, a really good group is, you know, 10 to 15 more than that, like, because there's a lot of individual attention and a lot of time given in the course of the entire weekend for everybody to work through different phases of the healing process. So we don't want to lose that because there's lots of people coming, but yeah. um, but everybody, all our teams out there are just stepping it up and trying to offer more. They're building their teams. So we're, we're launching a leadership conference um, in November that's going to last all year so people can tune in to learn not only about post-abortion trauma which I've spent the bulk of my career (laughs) and I could say that I've been teaching mental health professionals but I also from way back I was training pro-lifers because Mm -hmm. there was that belief that you know there was a lot of judgment toward women how could you do this a real lack of understanding and Leslie of compassion Mm -hmm. to meet that person in the great suffering, the great sorrow, the great lamentation that so many of them were in that defied words. And that's why talk therapy or even going to a trained psychotherapist or psychologist or even psychiatrist, many of the people that I worked with said that that they wouldn't allow it to be an issue, just like my supervisors mm-hmm. from graduate school um, of my field placements. And there was more than one. They just didn't want to, and I was already studying it in college. Like I was already, I knew I wanted to do a dissertation even when I went on for my doctorate. I wanted it to be about post-abortion trauma and specifically traumatic reenactment, which means mm-hmm. all the ways that people act out the shame, they act out the story. Why? Because the story's never been spoken and the body bears the burden in the trauma state that it lives in. The trauma state is the fight or the flight, the fear and the freeze. That's a survivor response because it's so devastating and people got to suck it all up 
They got to repress it down. They got to go back to work. Maybe someday raise kids and not be triggered by their own pregnancies, which is a big problem down the road. So through the lifespan, I suppose I've just spent years and years of observing and studying and, you know, all the different reactions. And when grief isn't addressed head on or directly, it comes out sideways, skewed every which way, because the mind is always trying to lift up that which must be reconciled and healed and integrated into who the person is. Otherwise you have these split cells, you know, we split Mm -hmm. off thing and can have kind of like dual realities. And I don't mean that in a, in a psychotic way. I just Mm -hmm. mean that you have your, your work self, and then you have this very hidden self that might act out, might engage in addictions, might look perfect mm-hmm. at work, or maybe not. Maybe the life just becomes a mess with multiple sexual partners, multiple abortions, and they're always retelling the story in different pieces by their actions, by their behaviors, by their thoughts, and many times through a lot of self-destructive, self-destructive behaviors. Well, it's fascinating. You you pack a lot of you pack a lot in, in your response. You so <laughs> so the, the fact that it, you're so packed now, do you attribute that to Roe v. Wade being overturned? Well, I do think that there was a time like, um, well, COVID slowed everything down, so everybody was sort of getting back into the groove of it. But we never had this many calls and long waiting lists, except for when we were beginning it. Mm-hmm. And then it's like many. In the beginning, we were sort of the only um, program in town that was spreading all over. We're in 80-some countries now, 37 languages, I think. It's always growing. I can't keep track. <laughs> um, but but that worldwide growth was because the people whose lives it changed spread the ministry. And therefore, um, we couldn't stop it, we could say. Right. You know, right. it's not growing. There were times in my life, especially with five kids and little ones, <laughs> you know, before we were partnered with Priest for Life, I didn't even have an office. Everything just went out of my home, including our hotline. <laughs> so there's just like the history when you look at it, it's what God, it's what God has lifted up. It's not mm-hmm. what society engendered or invited. In fact, there were many obstacles to doing this um, because I don't think that the world of healing fit anywhere between the politics of one or the other. You know what I mean? Right, right. Um, and so it was sort of like a an area where there was no safe space. A lot of people felt that way. They, they felt having their pain minimized and said, it's nothing. You know, go ahead and have another baby. This is a rational choice. You did the best thing. And that actually inhibits grieving or someone that would stand in judgment and say, you horrible person, look what you did. You know, mm-hmm. you killed a life. And, and while we can embrace that reality to create an environment of healing requires a lot of safety. And I believe in all my years of doing this, both as a, a good ther- therapist and also a um, also in the retreats, a spiritual setting where we bring them right to God, because the author of life, the Lord God, has to heal the loss of life, and we know that for just about every other, mm-hmm. every other slaying, you know, every other violence, school violences. You're going to see candles and vigils and prayers being said, regardless of what people's faith is, they know that when it comes to the devastation of the loss of human life, that irreplaceable human being, that the grief is profound and that someone's missing and everybody feels that loss. And the same I can say is absolutely true 
in abortion when people may have never met, might have even been early on or late on in the pregnancy, but there's a person missing and the mom knows it and the father knows it and they feel that their whole life, even the most stalwart pro-choice people that I have worked with know the know exactly the age their child would have been. You know, they remember the day they died. Mm -hmm. it's, it's like forever recorded in a parent's brain because it's the loss of, of one so intimate and so connected. Yeah. All right. Well, we're just about out of time. So I just want to tell people if you want more information or to find a retreat near you, go to rachelsvineyard.org. And thank you so much, Teresa, for being here. And I'm sure we're going to have you back a lot. Good to see you interviewing, Leslie. Thanks. Bye-bye. <laughs> When an organization is trying to fly under the media radar, it typically will announce big news late in the day on a Friday in the hope that reporters have gone home for the weekend. That might have been Planned Parenthood's intention when it released its annual report for 2020-2021 late last Friday. Pro-lifers have been waiting for the report since January. The report showed the nation's number one abortion seller killed more babies than ever before, performing 383,460 abortions in 2020, compared to 354,871 the previous year, an increase of 8.5%. The abortion giant performed 41% of all abortions in the U.S. During the time period covered in the report, Cancer screenings fell by more than 30%, well woman tests fell by 39%, and tests for sexually transmitted infections fell by 17.4% at a time when these infections are on the rise among young people. Pregnancy tests fell by 14%, and Planned Parenthood referred just 1,940 women for adoption. Overall, its customer base shrank from 2.4 million to 2.16 million. According to Dr. Michael New of the Charlotte Lozier Institute, the number of abortions performed by Planned Parenthood affiliates over the last 20 years has increased by an astounding 80%. During the same period, prenatal services have declined by more than 43%. But even though the abortion business performed fewer services, it received more taxpayer dollars than ever before an astounding $633.4 million in government grants and reimbursements, a 2.5% increase from 2019. The report also noted that Planned Parenthood's pockets are deep enough to have filed legal challenges to abortion restrictions in 21 states. Not mentioned is the fact that the organization will spend $50 million to elect pro-abortion candidates in November up $5 million from its investment in the 2020 elections. West Virginia's only abortion business announced on Wednesday that it would no longer perform the procedure after lawmakers on Tuesday passed a bill banning most abortions in the state. The bill bans abortion at any time during pregnancy, with exceptions for a non-medically viable fetus, an ectopic pregnancy, or a medical emergency, not including a mental health emergency. The bill also makes exceptions for pregnancies conceived in rape and incest. The bill specifies that several things are not considered abortion, including miscarriage, stillbirth, use of established cell lines for human fetal tissue research, in vitro fertilization, or contraceptives. West Virginia is the second state after Indiana to pass a law protecting babies from abortion since Roe v. Wade was overturned. And speaking of Indiana, the law passed there August 5th banning most abortions was enacted yesterday, despite numerous lawsuits filed to block the law. 
a judge hearing a challenge brought by the American Civil, Civil Liberties Union and several abortion providers, including Planned Parenthood, has set the first hearing for Monday. So for at least four days, babies in Indiana will be protected from abortion. In Ohio, a state judge on Wednesday put the heartbeat bill on hold for 14 days, meaning abortionists in the state cannot be prosecuted for performing abortions after a baby's heartbeat has been detected. The state Supreme Court on Monday dismissed a challenge to the state's heartbeat law because the plaintiffs, including Planned Parenthood, thought a case in a different court had a better chance of succeeding. Apparently, they were correct. Ohio's heartbeat law went into effect June 24th, immediately after the United States Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. While many are mourning the death of England's Queen Elizabeth, another queen, on a diplomatic trip to Texas, criticized Governor Greg Abbott for his state's near-total ban on abortion. Queen Maxima of the Netherlands and the governor had a private exchange in which Abbott reportedly told her, one thing we put high importance on here is the safety and health of the mother, but the other thing we put importance on is the safety and health of the baby. The Netherlands allows abortion until 24 weeks and later under certain circumstances. The Netherlands in 2002 also became the first nation to legalize euthanasia, which more, with more than 7,600 Dutch citizens, including teenagers, euthanized last year alone, an increase of more than 10% from the year before. And finally, a Florida abortion business has been fined $193,000 for performing abortion without adhering to the state-mandated 24-hour waiting period. Florida health officials determined that from April 26th until May 11th, the Center of Orlando for Women performed 193 same-day abortions on patients. The center is being charged $1,000 per violation. The law calling for the mandatory waiting period passed in 2015, but was blocked by court challenges until April 25th of this year. An attorney for the Orlando abortion business said they did not know the law had been enacted. In June 2014, a movie billed incredibly as the world's first abortion rom-com opened in the U.S., Obvious Child, was endlessly hyped by the media and received a 90% favorable rating by critics on the website Rotten Tomatoes. It stayed in theaters until October 3rd and earned $3.3 million at the box office over those four months. Last week, we encouraged our viewers to consider seeing the movie Life Mark, a pro-life, pro-adoption, pro-family film starring Kirk Cameron. In its opening weekend, it earned $2.2 million and cracked the top 10 highest grossing movies, landing in the number seven spot despite no previews and no critical reviews on Rotten Tomatoes, although it did receive an audience score of 97% on the site. If Life Mark stayed in theaters for four months, there's no telling what it would earn. But because this is a movie that dares to suggest there are options other than abortion, it's already gone from most theaters. Look for it on streaming services in the months ahead. Thank you so much for joining us on Pro-Life Primetime News, produced at Priest for Life headquarters in Titusville, Florida. We hope you will join us every Friday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time. We hope you will support this show in all of our broadcasts, including Just Ask Janet, Oceans of Mercy, Pro-Life is the New Punk Rock, and Primetime Live with Father Frank by making a donation to ProLifeGift.org. These donations help fund all of the work here at Priests for Life. As Mother Angelica, founder of EWTN, would say, please keep us between your gas and electric bill. Do you have an idea for a story? Are you someone whose baby was saved because of the help of a sidewalk counselor? Would you like to expose something in the abortion industry? Then please email us at media at PriestsForLife.org. I'm Leslie Palma, Communications Director. And I'm Anthony Vassone, Resource Associate. Remember, life is the only choice.
This has been the End Abortion Podcast. To learn more, to help end abortion, and to connect with us on social media, visit endabortion.net.